Wow, it's great to be back in a college. Uh, um, really enjoyed last night. We spent four hours of stimulating time discussing a whole lot of questions, current questions, historical questions. You're welcome to, uh, to come tonight for four hours or any part of that from 6.30 to 10.30 in, in Megabrock. Uh, one of the things I learned last night is that in some ways this debate is so many implications fraught with so many complexities, but in some ways, I think you can see that for abortion advocates, a lot of it is the question of sex and when that's allowed, when it's not, and so forth. And I think for a lot of people on the pro-life side, it's really a question of life, primarily. And those two things sometimes are involved in conflict and complexity. So we'll discuss that tonight, going through the history, 18th century, 19th century. I'll show an episode from a very significant uh, TV show in 1970 that changed lots of minds, perhaps in a pro-abortion direction. Um, give you about uh, seven minutes of George Carlin uh, uh, from 1996 and the influence of, of his. There'll be, uh, I gotta warn you, there'll be a lot of dirty words in there, but I think you can take it. It's a college audience. Uh, there are also a lot of, uh, a lot of words of great significance every word of great significance in the, uh, in the Bible. And so I'm going to go again to my scripture text for yesterday and today. It's 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 to 12 and 15 to 16. And just a little bit of background talking about life. Elijah has run for his life at this point. Uh, Jezebel and Ahab are out to kill him. He's headed into the desert. He's very depressed, um, almost suicidal, doesn't know what he's going to do next. And here's what God tells him here in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. A great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And then at verses 15 and 16, here's what God says to Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. So, um, as you all know, last year in June, new hope to the enforcement side of the pro-life movement. Now, we can have laws prohibiting abortion. Now, we can have the power of a tornado, an earthquake, or a fire. Well, as I mentioned yesterday, not so fast. Again, I am very glad the Supreme Court did what it did. I'm glad a lot of you were cheering. Um, the overturn of Roe v. Wade is part of telling the truth, because the right to abortion is, of course, nowhere in the Constitution. But the history I ran through yesterday morning shows how laws don't mean much without enforcement. And enforcement is very hard, as we've seen through the history of attempting to enforce abortion laws, and I suspect we'll see again over the next few years. And that's bad news in lots of ways, as I went through yesterday, and yet, as, uh, as my friend Tony Campolo used to say, it's Friday, and actually it is today, but Sunday's coming. So I want to talk a little bit about 
photos that open our eyes and push us to open our ears to hear God's whispers. Now, some of my pro-life friends have said they wish they were alive at some other time, a time when Americans were more likely to read the Bible and see how deeply the Bible is committed to protection of human life. And yet, in many ways, we live in a golden age of pro-life advocacy. In this way, we have what our predecessors yearned for, the ability to show not only what an unborn child looks like, which few people knew until the 1960s, but what a particular child threatened with abortion, maybe at some point your child looks like. And today I want to take you through six steps that lead to our present wealth and our seventh opportunity. Again, two centuries ago, many people thought that unborn children were like blumps uh, of clay until moms in their fifth month of pregnancy could feel the baby move. It's called quickening. But in 19, excuse me, in 1839, there was a Christian professor at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, Hugh Hodge, who lectured on the growth of an unborn child. And this is what a lot of people didn't know. Hodge, by the way, was the brother of a famous Reformed theologian at Princeton Seminary, who became famous, Charles Hodge. Hodge wrote uh, three volumes of a systematic theology, which is great for any of you to read. Hugh Hodge, his brother, described God's great handiwork. He began his lectures by noting that obstetrics differs from other fields of medicine because the welfare of two individuals is involved, two. The unborn child, Hodge said, from the moment of its conception, although retained within the system of its mother, has an independent existence. It forms its own fluids, it circulates them. Most people didn't know that. Hodge said that an abortion, and a first trimester abortion before quickening was still killing. The child lives and moves and thrives long before the mother is conscious of its existence. One of Hodge's students remembered, still 35 years later, later, the bold and uncompromising stand which he took against abortion made a deep impression upon his students. He early taught them to look upon this, alas, growing evil as a crime against God and man. So that's step one, when Hodge clearly pointed out, here's human life beginning at conception. A second step in defending life came in 1853, uh, Dr. Stephen Tracy published a book called The Mother and Her Offspring. Now, Hugh Hodge was sometimes abstract as he talked about life in the womb, but Tracy actually went week by week, quoting here, at 45 days, the head is very large. The eyes, mouth, and nose are to be distinguished. The hands and arms are in the middle of its length, fingers distinct. At two months, all the parts of the child are present. The fingers and toes are distinct. At three months, the heart pulsates strongly. The principal vessels carry red blood. So he was presenting word pictures to people. They still couldn't see with their own eyes, but they could at least listen to him and get a sense of what was going on. And then it was largely female physicians who took the third step. They spoke directly to women what Dr. Tracy and they knew was true. In the 1850s, Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first woman to receive a medical degree in the US. And she went lecturing around the country about, I'll quote her, I'll quote here, 
the first faint gleam of life, the life of the embryo, the cell rapidly enlarges, each organ is distinctly formed, it would be impious folly to attempt to interfere directly with this act of creation, end quote. That's in the 1850s. In the 1860s, there was a doctor, Anna Densmore French. She gained permission from the New York City Board of Education to use school property to teach school teachers about fetal anatomy, and they could then pass it on to their students. And here's what Anna Densmore said. Women would rarely dare to destroy the product of conception if they did not believe that the little being was devoid of life during all the earlier period of gestation. And then Anna Densmore showed step by step life processes going on from the very beginning of embryonic development. It's a continuous flow. In the 1870s, Dr. Rachel Gleason went around lecturing against defenders of early abortion, and there was a lot of early abortion. There was a lot of abortion back then. It isn't as if it all began with Roe v. Wade. And her lectures became a book called Talks to My Patients. You can get it in libraries, and it showed how the child lives, moves, and grows just as truly before quickening, that is, before the first, before four months, uh, as after. An attack with intent to kill is crime, whether the victim be large or small. And Dr. Gleason and some other writers at that time, pro-life feminists, which they predominantly were in the 19th century, she and they described what today we call post-abortion syndrome. She said, remorse for the deed drives women almost to despair. That was happened then, it happens now. I could go other women decade by decade. Uh, feminists were pro-life, female doctors. Uh, well, I mentioned Dr. Prudence Soar in the 1890s. She gave lectures, which again were then captured in a book, Maternity, a book for every wife and mother. Quote, the embryo is alive and hence quick from the moment of conception, as modern science has abundantly proven. It follows then that this crime is equally great whether committed in the early weeks of pregnancy or at a more advanced period, end quote. Uh, my favorite of all these writers, uh, Dr. Mary Hood, she wrote a poetic book. I like to picture little red Mary Hood carrying a basket with her books to some of your great-grandparents, maybe. Uh, this is at a time when abortion wolves wanted to eat them up. Here's how Mary Hood introduced the first moments of a baby's life. The two cells unite and become one, much as two drops of water, when they come into contact, merge into each other and become one drop. Two cells from two different beings unite to form the new cell, which will result in a, complete, in a completely new and different human being. Um, and by the way, I can, I can say after 46 years of marriage that getting married is kind of like that, the two cells combine, so I recommend it. Um, but nevertheless, a century ago, still a big problem. Despite those lectures, despite those books by female doctors, despite what the pro-life feminists were saying, very few people knew what unborn children looked like. So here's step four. There was an obstetrician named Robert Dickinson who was also an artist, wrote really good, drew uh, wonderful sketches of people and places, because he said, words cannot equal pictures for visualizing conditions. Dickinson, in New York City, got involved with a planning committee for the 1939 New York World's Fair. Uh, they arranged to pay a sculptor to show how human beings developed during all nine months of, up until that time, invisibility. So Dickinson did the sketches based on his experience as an obstetrician, and he, they also had x-rays at that point. He could 
get it all very scientifically. He did the sketches. There was a 32-year-old sculptor named Abraham Belsky who carved the most realistic and beautiful sculptures of unborn children ever created. And the result was really spectacular. Uh, more than two million people stood in line to view these birth series sculptures at the World's Fair in Queens, New York. Uh, there's one scholar who's written, all summer people stood in line, long lines, with wonder on their faces to see the marvelous models of the beginning of life. Neither rain nor shine stopped the crowds from coming, nor did the occasional stampede. So they wanted to see this, never before. The sculptures depicted development as a, as a romance, beginning with conception unfolding all the way to birth. The Gerber, the Gerber Company, which still makes baby food, distributed at the World's Fair and Elsewhere a booklet entitled, How Does Your Baby Grow? It included pictures and a warning. If you are thinking about an abortion, stop. Go to your family doctor, talk it over with him. Remember, some women get pregnant only once in life. Don't make a movie you'll regret. These were in all these pamphlets with pictures of the sculptures. And those sculptures traveled to medical and public health institutions in Cleveland and Chicago, many other cities, and then came mass reproductions and photos of the series and books with names like Birth Atlas, and eventually a baby is born. So that's step four, basically, from Hugh Hodges' lectures to Dr. Tracy's books to popularization by female doctors to showing rather than telling through the efforts of doctor, artist, Robert Dickinson. Now, there's some irony here. Dickinson wrote, but he did not publish, a personal essay, Blessed Be Abortion, that praised abortion as a way out of poverty and other difficult circumstances. So for Dickinson, it was a question of, there was a question of poverty, there was a question of sex, and that, in some way, much as he admired the beauty of unborn children, he was still thinking in those terms and not so much about life. During the 1940s, he actually became a Planned Parenthood senior vice president and director. Planned Parenthood had a strong abortion tinge, also a strong eugenics tinge, uh, you know, kill the, kill the children of poor people or the children of racial minorities real racist tinge. I mean, you can read all about this. But Dickinson, it was interesting. He still loved the beauty of an unborn child's development. So I think of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. God says he sometimes uses unethical leaders, Hazael and Jehu, to accomplish his purposes. So God used Dickinson to take this fourth step of turning wor words into sculptures and thus pictures. Fifth step, 1950s, a Swedish photojournalist, Leonard Nilsson, he was on a visit to New York, and he tells editors of Life magazine, I, I want to photograph unborn children. The editors are technically skeptical, but supportive. How are you going to do it? Uh, and it takes Nielsen 10 years to figure it out with these tiny, tiny, tiny cameras and inserting them. I won't go into all the, all the details here. It's just, just in, incredible technically. But that partnership between Life Magazine and Nielsen led to a Life Magazine cover in 1965 featuring a photo of an unborn child floating within an amniotic sac. Uh, that issue was Life's all-time fastest seller at checkout counters. And Life Magazine, by the way, back then was big. Millions and millions of copies sold every, every week. Uh, and this was its biggest seller ever. And that, that, turned, that turned into a book by Nielsen, A Child is Born, that became one of the top uh, illustrated books of all time. 
And so more people saw the reality. They could actually see what this child looks like. Now, that did not keep the U.S. Supreme Court from, in 1973, sadly pretending that the Constitution demanded a freedom to abort. Because when they were fixated on the question of sex and equality rather than the question of how are we going to keep babies alive, when it was sex rather than life, that was the predominant thing. That's where they ended up. So then came a sixth step, ultrasound imaging. The first person to put it to use for a non-medical audience was Bernard Nathanson in his documentary, The Silent Scream, in 1984. I, I bet a lot of your parents, and maybe grandparents, saw it. It was played in churches all over the place. I'll play it tomorrow morning. Uh, you'll be able to see it. it's a half-hour documentary showing, using this new thing at this time, ultrasound imaging, uh, showing a baby as he's about to be aborted. Uh, it was big in churches all over the place. Um, the Goodmarker Institute is the leading abortion advocacy uh, uh, scientific group in the, in the country, and it complained that the use of ultrasound was an attempt to personify the fetus and dissuade an individual from obtaining an abortion. Well, yeah, it's good to personify a person. And it made a big difference in people's thoughts about it. And then ultrasound, decade by decade, technologically improved. Maybe your parents, before you were born, born saw a multi-dimensional portrait of you in motion. Uh, crisis Pregnancy Center started using them big time about 20 years ago, and they found a sharp upswing in decisions to keep babies alive. Typically, at a pregnancy resource center, crisis pregnancy, they'll, the person comes in and they'll ask questions, and then they'll get a sense of, is this person leaning towards having abortion? And it uh, used to be before that, that of the people who came in, and they, they came in sometimes at that point for a free pregnancy test, and sometimes just to talk with the doctor and so forth, used to be that if they were already pretty determined to get an abortion, not a whole lot would change their minds. Maybe 10% maybe of them would change their minds. When ultrasound started to be used and shown, they can actually see not just a baby, but their baby. And the, and the boyfriends and husbands would come soon. I mean, that in lots of uh, pregnancy resource centers, it moved from maybe 10% changing their mind to 50% changing their mind once they saw their baby in motion. And abortion advocates became, became afraid, very afraid. Um, there was a 2016 Super Bowl commercial for Doritos. Maybe some of you saw it and, and remember it. I'll show it tonight. Uh, there's an unborn baby who moves yearningly towards a bag of Doritos. Uh, it's, it's pretty funny, and uh, I'll show it. Um, and that type of thing made a difference. I'll show some, some general electric commercials selling ultrasound machines, but in the course of doing that, showing on TV pictures of, of a baby in utero. Um, there was one journalist who commented, uh, uh, nobody shows a Facebook picture of their fetus. We call it a baby. And you may have seen these on, on uh, Instagram or uh, other things, actually, uh, an ultrasound photo. We call it a baby. And, and this journalist said, well, once we do so, the argument is over. Well, no, because then the question is, is the argument about, about freedom to have a life or freedom of sex? It goes on. But it's interesting, there are two social issues that have been at the center of our cultural battle in recent times, same-sex marriage and you know, any-sex abortion. 
Uh, from 1996 to 2019, the percentage of Americans favoring same-sex marriage zoomed from 27% to 63%. Huge social change in a fairly short period of time. And that argument in much of American culture seems over, at least for now. But from 1996 to 2019, pro-life sentiment held its own. That's been pretty stable year after year after year, despite claims of one side, claims of another side, and so forth, it's been pretty stable. And I think the photos, the, the, the quiet whispers, had something to do with that. I'll give you three examples of the power, not of tornado, earthquake, or fire, but the power of a gentle whisper. Um, some of you may have read, if you've ever had a, read a history of the Cold War or something in recent American history, there was a book that was a bestseller in 1952 called Witness by Whitaker Chambers. He left the Communist Party. Uh, he, he was a spy. He left the Communist Party at the end of the 1930s and became a Christian. And he dated his initial break with communism to the time his young daughter smeared porridge on her face. And Chambers found himself looking at what he called her intricate, perfect ears. And here's what Chambers wrote. At that moment, the finger of God was first laid upon my forehead. And I've seen this. My, as I mentioned yesterday, my wife started the Austin Crisis Pregnancy Center when we moved to Austin 40 years ago. So she was involved, and I've been involved in this for a long time. And boy, she and I have seen God's finger touching the foreheads of many women and men, particularly after they see their child's image on an ultrasound machine. I'll give you a second example from a generation later. There was a column in 1976 in the New York Times. At first it was anonymous, and then her name became known, Linda, uh, Linda Bird Frankie, uh, who was in favor of abortion. But she wrote in this column about how her abstract thinking about abortion changed once she became pregnant. She says, she wrote, suddenly the rhetoric, the abortion marches I'd walked in, they peeled away. And, and I was all alone with my microscopic baby. Nevertheless, Linda Bird Frankie had the abortion. And she later wrote, it certainly made more sense not to be having a baby. But I have this ghost now, a very little ghost that only appears when I'm seeing something beautiful like the full moon on the ocean last weekend. And the baby waves at me, and I wave back at the baby. A silent wave, God's quiet whisper. Move forward another generation. There was a book that came out about three years ago that I reviewed, poetry-filled book entitled Choice Words. And as you can see by the title, it's predominantly pro-choice, poems uh, supporting abortion. The editor said the purpose of the book was to renew our courage in the struggle to defend reproductive rights. Maybe so, but the quiet whispers were still there in places. One of the poems came from Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, you may be familiar with her. She was the first African-American to win a Pulitzer Prize for poetry. And here's what she wrote in 1945. Abortions will not let you forget. You remember the children you got that you did not get. I have heard in the voices of the wind the voices of my dim, killed children. So again, reminding us of 1 Kings 19, the gentle whisper. And those whispers are, worse, are, are, are worldwide. Uh, if you read a copy of this book, Choice Words, there's uh, Pratihiba Kelapur from India. 
And she, in her poem, she writes, during an abortion, blood, hope, and the whisper of a life float away. I'm just fascinated how often you see this whisper, just, just the way it is in 1 Kings 19. There was an Iranian poet named Farida Hassanzada Mustafavi, and she wrote, since your death, I am nothing but the wind with bloody hands. So again, the gentle whisper. If you go to the, the big British abortion uh, site, Planned Parenthood, of course, is the biggest in the U.S., uh, uh, MSI, uh, Marie Stokes, Reproductive Choices. Marie Stokes was a British pro-abortionist, but they changed the name a couple of years ago because she was also very much into eugenics and killing the children of poor people or racial minorities and so forth. So they changed it to MSI, Reproductive Choices. And so if you go to that website, you can see, I just looked at this last week, it complains about images of pregnant women, fetuses, and babies used by anti-choice groups to push their agenda. And so that website offers a tip for journalists who cover abortion. No babies. Don't use pictures. Don't, have, don't run a picture of a baby. Don't describe a baby. Use pictures of abortion pills or two women talking. Well, my, my tip is to play off Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, yes, and his whispers proclaim his handiwork. His whispers go throughout the earth. So I guess what I'm saying, and I'm glad, I'm glad there were cheers about, about the overthrow of Roe v. Wade. It was a bad decision. Even people on the abortion side knew it was just a really poorly written, poorly reasoned decision. It was embarrassing from their side. But nevertheless, um, cheer, yeah. But the question is, we think we have to use force to stop abortion. Um, we think we need to shout. We think we need to insist, no exceptions. Um, and I, yeah, I value that, that's, that's what I believe. I also tend to understand what Abraham Lincoln said, that in this country, and um, it's still a country where public opinion is really important. Uh, and, and not just public opinion, but private opinion. The, the whispers, the whispers that, uh, that a young woman and her boyfriend, as they're, as they're thinking about this, talking about it. So I think the legal change is important. It'll, it will help to save some, but, but not a whole lot, really. I mean, it will help to save thousands, and that's a lot, but there'll still be hundreds of thousands of abortions. Um, many hundreds of thousands will still die as long, as long as their moms and dads visualize them, you know, not as sucking their thumbs, but sucking life out of their parents. Um, I'll show you, I'll show some videos of that, of that tonight. Um, so in some way we have to get across through whispers perhaps, through convincing, through discussion, sometimes argument maybe, but not people throwing chairs at each other, but reasoning together, that children are our life. Um, children contribute to make life worth living. It's part of the experience. I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I say this as, you know, married for 46 years and the father of four sons and four daughters-in-law and now six grandkids and I hope, I hope some more coming. Uh, why would you want to go through life and miss that experience? Um, I guess my tip is let's, let's not rely primarily on force. Laws have a place, but let's try to rely on persuasion, uh, particularly persuasion by the facts shown in pictures. Show human life, tell stories of human life, sing songs about human life. 
The, the application of power often brings resistance. Poetry, songs, change hearts. And the ultimate persuader, the Holy Spirit, is pro-life. So, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the influence God has given us. This is the opportunity we have with pictures and poetry to present life. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you very much.